How you guys doing? Good. Outstanding. So this year's focus is apologetics, and it's a huge passion of mine. Um, I know some of you guys already know my story a little bit, but for those of you that don't, I did not grow up in the church. I grew up in Louisiana, which has a very heavy Catholic presence, and uh, New Orleans Saints. I mean, instead of counties, they're called parishes there. It's um, it's really significant. I went to Catholic high school, CHS. So I mean, that was that was my background. Um, we didn't really uh, go to church on Sunday mornings, um, but in uh, middle school, I did go through, um, got involved in their youth program and, and went through catechism and confirmation and got baptized. I was baptized when I was four years old in an Episcopal church. I've been baptized in the Catholic church. I've been baptized in the Baptist church. So I've gotten <laughs> baptized more times than I set a Guinness World Record, actually. So, no. But, um, so... I didn't hear the gospel until I was 19 years old and in college. I moved to Atlanta to go to Georgia Tech, and, and there was a guy who would go around to the freshman dorms, and he would bring in lasagna dinners. They had a little basement kitchen, and he would heat them up there, $2 a student, which is fantastic for poor college kids. It's a great break from ramen noodles, and he would use that as an opportunity to talk about God and the things of God, and, and I was a massive skeptic. I was definitely a prove-it-to-me kind of guy, and so I just pummeled him with question after question after question. His name was Carl. And he changed my life. And that was the first time that I heard the gospel. And I did pray to receive Jesus at, at, in that season, but he wasn't really Lord of my life until um, several years later and gotten connected to a fraternity at the same time. And so definitely was living after my own ways. Um, and so, so apologetics is huge for me because I want to make the gospel beautiful. I was like, how did I go 19 years of my life and never hear this incredible message. Everybody on the planet's got to know this, right? So I got involved in different evangelism programs, got trained at an evangelism boot camp with uh, Ray Comfort and Kurt Cameron out in Los Angeles and went through evangelism explosion and went door to door and all this kind of stuff just because I wanted everybody to know this message. And that season taught me a lot about what to do and a lot about what not to do when sharing the gospel. And so apologetics is a massive passion of mine. And that word comes from 1 Peter 3.15. It says, always be prepared to give an answer to those who ask you for the reason for the hope that you have in your heart. Always be prepared. And that word to make a defense or to give an answer is the Greek word apologia, which is the where the word apologetics come from. So it doesn't mean that we are apologizing. It means that we are making a defense. We're backing it up. But the most important part of that verse tends to be left out in the apologetics world. And that's to do it with gentleness and respect, to do it with gentleness and respect. And Paul wrote to the Corinthians, he says, love builds up, but um, knowledge puffs up, right? Knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. And so our focus as evangelists, we are messengers of Christ. He wrote to the Corinthians as well, that he wrote his love letter on our hearts to take to the world. We are God's letter to the world, and he's called us to live sent. And so the reason why I'm passionate about apologetics is because you're going to encounter hard questions. People are wrestling with this stuff. They're thinking about the things of eternity, and you've got to be prepared to give an answer and the reason for the hope that you have in your heart. Amen. So today we're going to look at God's creation and the evidence that God has put all over creation. And so I spent last night painting this mural over on the sidewalk. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> I didn't. I didn't do that. Just kidding. Yeah, exactly. No, I, I could not. It would be stick figures for sure. So we're going to look at, is there scientific evidence for God? So I'm just going to ask you to buckle up 
Don't worry about the argument you had with your wife this morning. Don't be thinking about work. I need everybody's brains locked in here so that we can look at this because it's really significant. And when you really press into it and really understand it, the reason why these kinds of things really are an incredible support to my life is everybody has times where we doubt. And so these kinds of things undergird our faith in a really significant way. There's times when I have doubts. I'm like, God, life is really hard. Are you there? Like John the Baptist, the guy who was was the messenger prepared to tell everybody about Christ's coming. He's like, Jesus, are you real? Right? Because he got life got hard for him. He's like, this is hard. God, are you real? Jesus, are you real? And we all have those moments. And it's important to be able to step down the ladder and say, all right, I know this is true. Okay, that's foundational. I know this is true. Okay, I know this is true. And, and slowly but surely, you can step back up that ladder in your faith. And so, so these things are really significant. And they're important to me. And I'm passionate about them. I love it. So, so don't be thinking about work and and uh, the things that are going on in your life, but focus in with me. So whether we look through a telescope out into the universe or whether we look through a microscope, God's fingerprints are all over. And so today, we're really just going to scratch the surface. I mean, we could talk for days and days and days. In fact, that conference isn't even going to scratch the surface. This is a lifelong journey of discovering the incredible um, way that God has made himself known to us throughout creation. So Romans 1. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. This is key. Suppress the truth. Come back to that. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has made it known to them for his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made so that they are without excuse. Right? So in the things God has made, he's revealed himself to us, even the things, his invisible attributes, his power, his love, his kindness, all of the things we can see all over nature and creation, right? So he's made it known, but yet we suppress the truth at times. And so that is why uh, scripture also says the fool has said in his heart, there is no God. It's not that they don't know that there's no God, it's that they've suppressed that truth, right? Because God has made it known to them. So we're going to look at um, the appearance of design in nature and natural selection and how a little bit of the kind of the backstory because that's really significant to why um, what we're talking about today. So atheists oftentimes will accuse Christians of just throwing God in the gaps, right? The God of the gaps argument, if you've ever heard that phrase. So what happens is they think that whenever we don't understand something, we just throw this magical mystery God into the hole to plug that hole to fill the hole to fill the gap if you will. And we're going to look at the scientific evidence that we have for God, and you're going to find that that gap is much, much smaller. In fact, that gap is almost infinitely big for the atheists, and we're going to spend some time looking at that. So even atheist scientists today, all atheist scientists, I don't want to say all, but most atheist scientists, I'll say that for sure, most atheist scientists believe that there is the appearance of design in creation. You cannot ignore the fact that the things that are within our body have purpose. And if, if something is in our body and it doesn't have purpose, our body rejects it, right? And so I would just say, if everything in our body has purpose, then why doesn't our entire being have purpose as well? So in the middle of the 1800s, because people saw God in nature, he's made himself known, right? Charles Darwin comes to the scene and he 
he creates this theory of why there are natural processes that can mimic the appearance of design. And so this process that he developed was called natural selection, which many of you have heard about. It's essentially uh, survival of the fittest, right? So here's what natural selection says, and this is key. The process whereby organisms better adapted to their environment tend to survive and produce more offspring. Survival of the fittest. You guys have all heard that, right? So from generation to generation, I have a child. If there's a mutation there, if it's a beneficial mutation, that is going to continue to perpetuate itself because that uh, child is going to be uh, more likely to survive. It's gonna, they're going to have benefits. It's going to have um, uh, benefits that will allow them to survive and then reproduce. And, the, and it's the ones that reproduce that are, that are going to perpetuate that advantage um, through natural selection. So the problem is when Darwin developed that theory at that time, historically, science thought that the cell, which is the fundamental uh, piece of life, they thought that the cell was just this simple glob of protoplasm. They didn't understand it, but in the last 70 years, our knowledge of the cell has absolutely exploded, and it's just fascinating. And so we're able to see these things through micro microscopic videos, and there are worlds that are so small that you can fit a you can fit four billion single-cell uh, bacteria in a thimble. Four billion in a thimble. And once you dive into this incredible universe through a microscope, it's just absolutely awesome. There's no way Darwin could have imagined all this. So at the very basis of life, where molecules and cells run the show, we've discovered machines, literally molecular Machines. There are trucks that transport materials from one side of the cell to the other. There's machines that harvest energy from the sun uh, and turn it into usable energy for the cell. There are machines that help us breathe the transfer of oxygen and carbon dioxide in the lungs. There are machines that make that happen. There are molecular machines. Every function of the human body and every function in nature for, for whatever is alive has machines that are doing all the work. So smell, taste, hear, all of that has machines that actually make all of that stuff work. So Michael Behe is a scientist. There's a lot out there, but he um, has really been outspoken about some of the things that he's discovered um, when it comes to scientific evidence as an atheist scientist himself. I want to just uh, run this video real quick. He began to share these findings in the early 90s. So Michael Behe uh, has coined this phrase, irreducible complexity. And the idea behind this, and again, this is, it's key to understand how natural selection works to, to put all these puzzle pieces together. All of the parts of the system are necessary for the system to function, and without all of the parts, without all of the parts, the system doesn't function. So think about a mousetrap as an example, right? This is a, a much more simple machine, but um, you've got the base, you've got the spring, you've got the arm bar, you've got the locking bar, you've got the, um, the catch. All of those things are necessary. Without one of them, this thing doesn't work, right? And so now what happens is now you have a functional disadvantage. So let's say um, you get a, um, well, here's, here's what Charles Darwin said. Natural selection is scrutinizing variations, rejecting those that are bad and preserving and adding up those that are good. Again, survival of the fittest. A mutation happens. It creates a benefit to the organism. That benefit gets passed on from generation to generation to generation to generation. The problem is the bacterial flagellum has 40 different protein parts that are necessary. So the question then becomes, how do bacteria 
uh, develop this flagellar motor out of a population of bacteria that don't have that system. So evolutionists need to be able to explain how you can build those parts gradually without having all of the parts. So imagine a scenario, if you will, where there are no bacteria anywhere in the world that have the flagellar motor, then all of a sudden there's a mutation that happens and the bacteria is able to build a tail, let's say, and let's say it also happens to have the parts that are able to attach it to the cell wall. Well, this tail now just sits there limp. It's not a benefit to the organism anymore. It's, it's actually a detriment. It's actually a deficit to the organism. So it's completely invisible to the process of natural selection. It's a disadvantage, not an advantage. So scientists, atheist scientists, have given a rebuttal um, using the co-option theory Again, this is all theory on their part, that natural selection was able to borrow parts from other existing machines. The problem is the bacterial flagellum has 10 parts that are used in other machines, but 30 that are completely unique to itself. Again, don't miss what he said in that video. That thing turns at 100,000 RPMs, can stop on a quarter turn and turn 100,000 RPMs the other direction. At 6,000 RPMs, your car is overheating, right? So... The biggest problem with the co-option rebuttal is that it doesn't account for the assembly instructions that are necessary to tell this thing how to get built. You have to assemble them in sequential order or it doesn't work. So it's just like when you're building a house, it's not just enough that the parts are there, you have to make them at the right time, you have to make the right number of components, you have to assemble them in a sequential manner. Just like when you're building a house, these workers follow a detailed blueprint instruction manual on how to put this thing together. If you don't build the house in the right order, right, Bob? You come teach us about building homes. If you, if you pour the foundation before you do your underground plumbing, you're hosed. If you build out your kitchen before you put your roof on, you're hosed. Your kitchen cabinets are getting ruined. you got to build them in sequential order at the right time, in the right space, with the right number of components, or else it does not work. It becomes a functional disadvantage. So without the instructions, this thing doesn't get built. Without the machines that take the instructions and build the thing, this thing doesn't get built. There are over 30,000 different proteins, and even in the simplest of cells, there are thousands, not a few, thousands. This is not just a glob of protoplasm. There are thousands of proteins in the simplest cells that we know about in science today. And the function of these protein molecules uh, comes from their highly complex three-dimensional shapes, and these irregular shapes of some um, allow chemical reactions to take place because of their hand-in-glove fit, so that when they come together, it triggers chemical reactions. And parts of the flagellar motor can either be made by a single protein or a complex arrangement of multiple proteins that form specific shapes. And then when all of these uh, proteins come together, they're actually made up of smaller chains of molecules called amino acids, right? So when you take these proteins and examine them more deeply, you've got amino acids that come into the picture, and these uh, are formed in chains just like that, and then it's folded and, and compiled into this organism, this protein. There are 20 different amino acids um, that are used to make up over 30,000 proteins. And scientists have compared this to the letters of the alphabet. And if you think about uh, a dictionary and how many uh, different combinations there are of letters, uh, there are 30,000 known different proteins. And 
proteins other than DNA, proteins perform every function within the, in the, in the cell in the body. So, so they, they form the structure. They, um, they make up these machines that do all of the work. It's incredibly complex. And just like with uh, letters, when they are put together in the right order, you can actually read them. They make sense, right? But if you just throw them together randomly, it's just complete gibberish. And that same, that same truth is reality for amino acids and proteins. If they aren't put together in the right order, your body's going to get rid of it. It's going to reject it as being useless. So it, they have to be assembled in the correct order. And so not only do we have the parts of the uh, machine that have to be there and all have to be there in order for it to create a functional advantage so that natural selection will see it, but now you also have the instruction manual within the DNA and also the amino acids have to be built in exactly the right order or this thing doesn't happen. So that chain of amino acids folds itself into these complex three-dimensional shapes and the formation determines the function of that particular protein in the cell. It's just fascinating stuff. So there's another large molecule in the cell that you guys are familiar with um, where the information is used as stored and used to arrange these amino acids into chains that are then folded into these complex three-dimensional proteins. And not only do you have irreducible complexity in the, uh, the parts of the cell that make up the machines, like the flagellar motor, but there's irreducible complexity in the arrangement of the amino acids that form the proteins that form the parts of the machines, but then the only way that, the, that these chains of amino acids are formed is due to the DNA instruction manual that tells chains how to actually form. So there's irreducible complexity at every single lever, level, and the deeper you go, the more complex uh, it gets. So DNA is formed with these four bases that are combined to form assembly instructions, and so kind of like the letters and the amino acids, you can kind of think about these four bases as letters uh, that are used to, it's information, it, it literally it's God programmed information. Um, so you have adenine, cyanine, thymine, and guanine, these four bases that have an incredible number of different combinations that come together. And, and then these, this is the instruction manual. These are the blueprints, right? This is information. There's more information in the DNA of a one cell amoeba than there is in an entire encyclopedia. Let me say that again. There's more information in the DNA of a one-celled organism than there is in an entire encyclopedia. Bill Gates has called DNA like a computer program, but more complex than anything humans have ever written. It's off the chain. There's no other source of information that we know of other than intelligent life. And that's why scientists, even atheist scientists today, say there's the appearance of design, but the problem is they bring their presupposition to the science table and say, no, it can't be God. And, and I would suggest that um, there, there was a professor um, who, was, uh, who allowed a Christian apologist to come to, into his class and, and teach, and then afterwards they went and had lunch together, and, and this apologist um, asked him, said, hey, what did you think about the presentation? He says, no, it was all spot on. It was all spot on. And so he says, well, why do you disagree with it? He says, well, I want to be able to do whatever I want to do. I want to be able to do whatever I want to do. As soon as God comes into the picture, now 
I've got accountability. I've got somebody I've got to answer to. When we press into this even further and look at the process of how all this works, it just gets more and more and more fascinating to me. So this is computer animation that'll help us kind of see how all of this stuff works. But when you head into the nucleus of the cell and look at the DNA process, so when, you, when, you're, when a new child is born and it's building from scratch, or when you scratch yourself and your body needs to repair itself, what happens is there's a molecular machine and again, don't miss the number of machines that, that are necessary to make all this stuff work. There's a molecular machine that will come into the picture and unwind a strand of DNA. There's another molecular machine that comes in and then copies the information for the particular proteins that it needs to build. It just unwinds that section of DNA, copies the section of information that it needs to build the protein or proteins that it needs to build. Again, you scratch yourself, it's got to repair itself. Boom, it's, it kicks itself into action. You've got a, um, this is what's called messenger RNA. You've probably heard that a bunch with all the vaccine stuff going around, right? So this is essentially a copy of the DNA that it just had, but it's messenger RNA. Takes this information through this other machine, which is like the gatekeeper to the nucleus of the cell that opens and closes as it needs to. Then this is going to go to a a ribosome, which is a two-part machine, that then um, is going to uh, begin to build a chain of amino acids based on this blueprint. It's, that's exactly what it is. It is a blueprint. So what it's doing, you see this chain of amino acids that's being built down here at the bottom. Um, based on the code that's written up top, all of these things fit together, and this is building this in an exact, precise sequence, just like the letters in, a, in words. If, if you get gibberish, the body's going to reject it, so it has to be built in sequential order here. Once it comes out of that uh, ribosome, then it goes to the cylindrical machine that then folds the uh, DNA, excuse me, the, um, this chain of amino acids into the protein, uh, that it's uh, that it's building, and again, this is a complex three-dimensional. So when we have information in a textbook, it's 2D. This is folding into a three-dimensional shape that determines the function of that particular protein in the body. I don't even say body in a single-cell uh, bacteria or amoeba. Then there's another molecular machine when that's done folding or a truck, if you will, that then transports that protein to where it needs to go. It sends it to your arm, if you scratch your arm, whatever that happens to be. So it's just absolutely fascinating. And so again, the question to our atheist scientist friends is how does life start from nothing, right? There, there was no, scientists know of uh, no, they know of no simple blobs of protoplasm that are alive. The only evidence that we have is of this complexity. So there's zero evidence, zero, zero. I'm not talking about some. I'm not talking about, um, you know, this is entirely theory, entirely theory. How proteins could assemble themselves without genetic information, 
It's never been observed for that to happen without genetic information. How life can form or what that form of life even looks like without these complex chains of amino acids. There's no form of life that's ever been observed ever without these complex chains of amino acids. Um, and, and like I'm talking like a modest number of amino acids to form a protein is over 100. Even if a cell could form, how it could replicate itself without the machines that are necessary to do it and how natural processes uh, could have created the massively complex DNA molecule. And without DNA, there's no self-replication. But without self-replication, there's no natural selection. So how does this thing ever get started? The entire foundation of everything you believe as an atheist scientist is based on zero evidence. And they accuse us of throwing God in the gaps. So this creature that was the start of life from no life is an entirely imagined creature. Science knows of no organism that isn't made up of these incredibly complex proteins with DNA and the assembly machines required uh, and replicating machines and transport machines and on and on and on. And since Darwin first published his theory, not only has science failed to find more evidence that supports it, but what science has discovered since then has only revealed how much more magnificent God is. And when you don't come to the table with the presupposition that there is no God and you just allow the evidence to go where it leads, there is no other conclusion that makes sense, right? So what I would suggest to you guys is that we do require faith, right? We do require faith. But here's the evidence for theism, and, and here's the reality that theism is true, and here's the leap of faith to get from the evidence that we have to a worldview of theism. But when you look at the... Keep going. Hey! That was so important for y'all to see, right? When you look at the evidence for atheism and the leap of blind faith, again, this is what we get accused of, right? Blind faith and imaginary creatures, Easter bunnies and things like that. Right? They're, they're imagining creatures as well, and they got a whole lot of blind faith. And there's a fantastic book that I would highly recommend. Frank Turek and Norm Geisler wrote it. It's called I Don't Have Enough Faith to Be an Atheist. Um, it's a bit heady. You got to, you know, some of the pages you'll read, and you'll have to go back and reread them again. That's okay, um, but super helpful. Um, and so the reality is that everything that they accuse us of, they are guilty of, um, and much, much more. So... Stephen Meyer, uh, who's written a book called Signature in the Cell and Return of the God Hypothesis, has shown that the probability of producing even a single functional protein, just a protein, I'm not talking about an entire cell, I'm talking about just a protein within the cell of modest length, 150 amino acids, by chance alone in a prebiotic environment, stands at no better than a vanishingly small one chance in 10 to the 164th power an inconceivably small probability. And to put this into perspective, recall that physicists estimate that there are only 10 to the 80th elementary particles in the entire universe. Let me say that again. One chance in 10 to the 164th power that this could have happened. And there's only 10 to the 80th elementary particles in the entire universe. So I would suggest that choosing to be an atheist is like walking along the beach and you see this message written in sand. Don't know who did it, you just found it, right? 
and your choice is to come to the conclusion that wind and waves formed this message on the beach. That's the logic, right? And they're saying, we, well, you don't, you don't know that there's, there's no empirical evidence for God. Yes, there is. And we make these kinds of assessments all the time. If you find a watch in the woods, you know there was a watchmaker. Because the complexity of that thing didn't just happen by chance. You know that this didn't happen by chance. You know if you're walking through the woods and all of a sudden you come up to a mountain and you see the faces of four presidents carved into it, that didn't happen by wind and erosion over millions of years. We know that. We make those kinds of assessments all the time. It's basic, common sense. And yet they reject it. Yeah, I lost my connection. So, um, quick announcement before we wrap up. Um, a couple of years ago, I did a youth apologetics little thing at my house. We had about 20 kids there. And if you are a dad, um, I would suggest to you that these are things you need to be up to speed on. Because when your kids go out into the real world, they're going to be, they're going to encounter really hard um, objections to their faith. And they need to be able to understand the answers to these questions. I was hearing the story of a dad whose girl, uh, whose daughter, like, led, like, she was going to go to UNC and take the UNC campus for Christ. Like, she left high school and she was passionate. And within six months, she called her, uh, she called her dad and said she didn't believe anymore. And it's because she encountered a guy named Bart Ehrman, who was a professor, um, a textual critic, at professor of theology if you, you know, at, uh, at UNC. And that's a whole other can of worms to open. But the bottom line is she was not prepared when she went to college. She wasn't. And I don't care that our kids necessarily know the answers to all of their professors' hard questions in class, because they're going to encounter them in their philosophy class and whatever class they encounter. I don't care that they know the answers, but I care that they know that there are answers, right? Because they'll remember that when they encounter those hard objections, they're going to say, okay, well, let me go find the answer, right? And then, and then we can help, um, help them do that. But if they get to that place, then there's two things that are happening simultaneously at that time. You've got the temptation of the, the party world that's happening, right? And it's, the reason why it's called temptation is because it's tempting. <laughs> right? And it looks like abundant life. Man, they're having a great time. Look at these guys over here partying it up. This looks like abundant life. And then at the same time, simultaneously, they're hearing from the professor really good objections to why God can't possibly exist. And now all of a sudden, they're like, whoop, boom, gone, and, and I'm going to go find abundant life over in this space over here. And that really is ultimately our choice. It's the same choice Adam and Eve had in the garden. It's the same choice we are faced every single day, simply to trust that God is enough to satisfy our soul or to try and seek abundant life in the other things of the world, the other shiny fruits of the world. And God said if we try and find them in the other shiny fruits of the world, it's going to lead to death. But in him and in him alone, that's where we find abundant life. So we need to help our kids. So all that to say, um, this is not a major conference. This is going to be like in our living room at the farm. But if you have kids that you think would be interested um, they're invited to, to come be a part of it. There may be, I don't, I don't know yet, there may be a small fee to cover books, um, but we'll, we'll go through a curriculum that's based on I don't have enough faith to be an atheist, and we'll cover um, some of the same stuff that we did today. But it's, we're going to do it for 10 weeks. It's going to be every Thursday, 6 to 8 p.m. Um, and if you're interested, just email me. It's josht at dogoodfarm.org. 
um, and we'd love to have them. And I would, high school or college is fine. So um, that's all I got, man. <laughs>